Hello and welcome to Westminster Watch. It's Tuesday the 14th of December. My name is Professor Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined by my colleague Dr. Ben Worthy. The purpose of this podcast is to explore issues in the news that speak to the academic study of British politics. Over to you, Ben, for our first news item. I thought I'd go with the story that's been leading the news for at least the past week, but really has been leading the news since the Patterson vote back in November, which is about the future of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. As we're speaking, there's been a weekend of some of the worst headlines seen for a Prime Minister in modern times around Boris Johnson um, and the allegations around not just a Christmas party, but several Christmas parties last year, which broke lockdown rules. But to put this into context, ever since the Patterson vote and the mismanagement of um, Owen Patterson's vote and the standards changes, which we covered in the last podcast, Boris Johnson has been enduring some extraordinarily bad press. Now there's all sorts of speculation that Boris Johnson's time in office is nearing an end, and it could be that he won't be Prime Minister for very long at all. So I want to make three provocations based on uh, some research I actually did about the previous Prime Minister, Theresa May. Provocation one is Boris Johnson is down but not out. Provocation two is removing a leader is much more difficult than it looks. And three, even a weak prime minister can um, roll the pitch and do all sorts of things to stay in power. Bear in mind that Boris Johnson has been prime minister for around two years and five months. He became prime minister on the 22nd of July 2019, which seems a very, very long time ago. Um, To take the first provocation, Boris Johnson is down, but he's not out, in my opinion. Uh, The key relationship in British politics, as my parliamentary studies students know all too well, is between the government frontbench, the party leader, and the government backbench. All of the relationships are very much secondary. And it's no exaggeration to say Boris Johnson's backbenchers are deeply, deeply unhappy. Twelve of them have already sent letters to the 1922 committee, uh, whereby they can trigger a vote of confidence in the leader. We've seen open unhappiness, not just from a small group of unhappy rebels on the backbenches, but across a whole range of people from ex-ministers, red wall Tories, all the way to kind of supposed Theresa May supporters. And of course, just added to this, to make it into an almost truly Thatcherite moment when she was removed, uh, Labour are now pretty firmly ahead in the polls with their, their highest poll rating since 2014. So it looks like um, Boris Johnson's in a great deal of trouble. But I'd argue even though he's in trouble... He's not out yet. Um, Remember that the key to British politics and the key to the House of Commons is actually party loyalty. And it takes a great deal for MPs to move against a leader. It takes me to my second point that removing a, a leader is very difficult under the Conservative leadership rules. Just to remind you, there is not a kind of competition between different leaders, but you have to have a vote of confidence in the leader themselves. You need 54 letters to the Um, 1922 committee, given the present numbers, to have a vote of confidence. There's only 12. And remember, it's a very, very high hurdle, and it's a big step for MPs. Remember, Boris Johnson got them there. He won them. He's still a winner in many people's eyes. So actually, the difference between being very unhappy and actually triggering a leadership vote is both procedurally very difficult, but also psychologically very difficult. And just my final point, even though Boris is in what I'd say is deep trouble, there's still a lot he can do. 
they've got kind of just borrowing from uh, the talk less light from Dennis McShane. You've got kind of three P's a prime minister can do policy. They can set the agenda. They can move new items up the agenda to distract patronage. Remember, the prime minister has a huge control of party patronage, but also things like the House of Lords, which is a place where many MPs would like to go afterwards. And of course, the politics, even a weak prime minister can kind of undercut rivals, weaken rivals and do all sorts of things to stay in power. So I'd say he's down. I tend to agree if his party was going to move against him, they would have done so by now. He had a very tough week uh, politically last week, but yet he's still in office. And isn't this part of just the the character of Boris Johnson that um, he is uh, plagued by scandal there are big questions marks over his uh, how trustworthy he is, but all of this has been priced in politically. It's not like we've just learned this about Boris Johnson. This has always been a feature of him as a as a politician, indeed as a journalist before that. I think this is part of Boris's show, and here I see similarities with Trump. That in a sense he creates chaos around him. He keeps people guessing the whole time, and this distracts from the real uh, business of power. I don't really see any evidence uh, to date that his party are seriously ready to move against him. We're a long way from the next general election. There isn't an obvious rival within his party. People are talking about Liz Truss, maybe as someone who's uh, gaining a strong reputation in in the Conservative Party. She's using her role as foreign secretary to try and uh, boost her political profile. But I don't think she's necessarily ready yet. Uh, to mount a serious challenge against Boris Johnson. What struck me this week, and this speaks to my research interests, is the power and limits of visual politics. So what we saw was the seemingly killer photograph of Boris Johnson at a Christmas gathering in Downing Street, where he was uh, playing the role of uh, uh, Quizmaster, briefly. Uh, he has a very sombre look in this, and I think that probably saved his premiership. If he seemed to be having fun, if he was covered in tinsel, if he was laughing, just like Allegra Strachan was laughing in the in the video that ultimately uh, led to her uh, resignation uh, from her government role, you know, this maybe could have mounted more pressure on Boris Johnson. But as it stands, even though we see photographic evidence that Keir Starmer has suggested is evidence of a crime potentially, um, he's still in office. He is, I think, a political survivor. And I just don't really see... Uh, him being in serious political jeopardy uh, from the moment. Of course, we have a by-election later this week um, in North Shropshire. Owen Patterson's seat is up for grabs. There's talk of the Liberal Democrats mounting a very serious challenge on the ground there. But I think even that is unlikely to be enough to push him over uh, the edge. I don't think the Conservatives are ready to change horses uh, in the middle of the race. Yeah, and and there's kind of two competing considerations here for your average Conservative MP. If you want to imagine yourself as a Conservative MP, there's two kind of big questions. Who replaces them? And also, if the leader isn't removed, what happens then? You've got the twin dangers of either getting an unknown as Prime Minister who you might not want, but also... If their vote of confidence fails, you have a leader still in office, still able to do something and not very happy at all. Um, and I think um, I think you're entirely right. My best guess is that Boris Johnson will survive over the Christmas break, as well as the fact that the, the growing crisis that we're seeing around us with COVID again will also protect him from removal in the sense that you don't want to remove a leader in the midst of such a deep and, and kind of obvious crisis my my suspicion is he he won't last three more than three years probably 
uh, if there's an election in the offing, but he'll disappear suddenly, going back to the orig- originator, even before Donald Trump of this style of politics, back to Silvio Berlusconi, who was there and suddenly he was gone. So my best guess is it won't be a kind of slow descent. It will be a kind of sudden disappearance as a premier. Maybe just to challenge something that you said earlier about the power of patronage, I wonder whether that's peaked under Johnson's premiership. There's a lot of talk of uh, serious reshuffles. He's done fairly light touch reshuffles. He's moved Dominic Raab, who we'll talk about in a moment, uh, but he hasn't moved uh, other senior members of his government. I get a sense that perhaps his perennial weakness as prime minister means he cannot do a major reshuffle, and that suggests that his uh, power has peaked. That's quite possible. I mean, the other thing that's often said about Johnson is that he doesn't actually have a kind of core of loyalists around him. Even May had a core of loyal MPs and supporters within the party. And and it's said that one of the dangers for Boris Johnson is he just has factions around him and no kind of core of support that he can call on. I mean, the other way to look at Labour is Labour's ahead of the polls, but it should be a lot further ahead, given how the government has managed uh, the uh, pandemic, given the slow speed at which we've seen the booster uh, jobs rolled out. Um, another way to look at it is that Johnson is still in the fight, uh, it's not over, and he's a lucky general, and there's a good chance that he can kind of pick up uh, support between now and the next general election. And just as a, a final thought, remember that it's kind of a double-edged sword for Labour to be head in the polls. On one hand, it panics Conservative MPs, of course, especially marginal constituencies, We're talking a lot about, for example, MPs in the newly won kind of red wall seats, but also it can trigger party loyalty. There's concern that Labour might win the election, so MPs can in turn become more loyal to whichever leader they have. And remember, it wasn't long ago in the local elections that Boris Johnson was still seen as a winner. So he could still yet kind of turn it round or at least get to a slightly safer ground than he's on at the minute. So, I mean, uh, as I said earlier, this is part of the populist show, is to have a very chaotic style of of government, uh, to keep people constantly guessing about the next crisis, um, all the talk this week has been about whether Johnson's going to survive politically. I think that's part of the show in the sense that it distracts from the other business of government. It's very easy for critics of Johnson to uh, point out his uh, turbulent style of, of government. I think that's a very dangerous way to think about this government because as we saw today, it's getting on with the business of governing. And so today was uh, an important day for the Johnson administration because Justice Secretary Dominic Raab stood up in the House of Commons and announced that there would be a review stroke consultation of the Human Rights Act. The Human Rights Act um, has been on the books since 1998, incorporates rights set out in the European Convention on Human Rights into domestic British law. It puts the onus on British judges to take account of ECHR rulings and case law uh, in its own judgments. Um, I was really struck how personal an issue this is for Dominic Raab. This is the issue that he got into politics for. So Dominic Raab was a lawyer by training who was seconded to places like Liberty. He went to work in the Foreign Office. He was seconded to Brussels for a while. He was drawn into the world of human rights. I think the key moment in his career is when he works as a chief of staff for David Davis, uh, a long-standing libertarian in British politics. And it's during his time working for David Davis that uh, Rab really deepens his interest and his criticisms of uh, the European Court of Human Rights and the Human Rights Act. Uh, Rab writes a book called The Assault on Liberty, which many people have been returning to this week. It's a polemic that does a nonetheless an unusually deep dive for a politician into the world of international law. And Rab argues um, that um, 
in a sense, there's both an inflation of human rights in the UK and, and a reduction in them. He is concerned that human rights has been stretched in its meaning to include economic and social rights, which he attributes uh, somewhat bizarrely to the Soviet Union, uh, its influence being spread internationally after all these years. Um, uh, he also thinks that uh, the Blair government uh, used security to undermine uh, civil liberties um, in the name of the war on terror. And finally, he thinks of judges in a way as um, um, going beyond their m mandate. And he's talking about the judges in Strasbourg at the European Court of Human Rights, but also uh, British judges in their interpretation of that law. He points towards rulings on things like prisoners' uh, voting rights, on the deportation of uh, hate preachers in the UK, and argues that um, these uh, human rights obligations have defied common sense. So it's interesting to see uh, the kind of consistency in Rab's argument when he stands up in the House of Commons today says that the UK will continue to respect the European Convention on Human Rights and continue to respect the European Court on Human Rights, but that it will rework elements of the Human Rights Act that, it, it, that is in domestic legislation. It's likely to uh, weaken some of the obligations on UK judges to take account of uh, UK of uh, the rulings of the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and it's, I think, an extraordinary moment uh, for this government. This, these arguments have been long in the discussions in the Conservative Party, and we're finally seeing Rab making his move now. Well, I, I, the Human Rights Act is a fascinating piece of legislation, um, and it actually was, was kind of passed when I was still doing my A-level law, so it seems to have accompanied me throughout my kind of political career. And I think there's two kind of paradoxical elements to how the Human Rights Act is talked about. Firstly, it's changing or removal is the kind of utopia for lots of MPs in the Conservative Party, particularly on the right. And again, to draw the analogy with the Soviet Union, it's like the, like, like the utopian final stage of communism. Um, but at the same time, and to this, I'm borrowing kind of Peter Hennessy's phrase about the House of Lords, it's become the kind of new Bermuda Triangle of British politics where politicians get lost. I mean, um, Gordon Brown was talking about a British Bill of Rights uh, towards the end of his premiership. Uh, Cameron promised a British Bill of Rights in the coalition, and it's often promised and not gotten. It's interesting that this is a kind of lesser change, which seems to be a kind of domestic change that doesn't affect kind of the wider ramifications. But as you say, the other thing that struck me is quite how many sort of uh, political boxes this ticks for the Conservatives right at this moment, because it's about kind of, um, it's an issue around wokeness and political correctness, as Dominic Robb uh, said this morning. It's also connected to issues uh, around immigration, refugees, and and as as he said, tackling gangs. And it's also about Europe and Brexit. So it does a lot of them. I think he framed it as a kind of a, a change for, inverted commas, common sense, as he put it. Yeah, so certainly domestically, what was interesting about his performance was his invitation to Labour to campaign against some of the rationale for this. You know, do you really want to, he asked them, uh, be campaigning for more rights for prisoners? Are you really supporting... Uh, the rights of foreign criminals. It's the framing of that, that it's clearly been tested on focus groups, I would imagine, and it's uh, this is really upping the, the ante on Labour, daring them to defend this. I think it's also very much related to Brexit, but in ways that are complex. So I think the UK rolling back on its commitments to the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights is really the project uh, that, that in some senses supersedes Brexit, right? You know, one reading of Brexit, or at least 
uh, people like Theresa May's approach to Brexit was that decoupling the UK from its international commitments and human rights was always the real prize. You know, when Theresa May gave a speech in early 2016, she said, on balance, she'd want the UK to remain in the EU, but it should serve notice on some of these obligations in relation to Strasbourg. Um, and in a sense, this is the Conservative Party returning to those themes, using its large majority to really go after that prize in their eyes. On the other hand, Brexit constrains what they can do because the EU was very worried in Brexit negotiations about the UK relinquishing, relinquishing its commitments under the European Convention on Human Rights. And it's written into the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement that cooperation between the EU and the UK is contingent on the UK respecting its obligations to these international treaties. Um, the EU is worried here about having a, a neighbour that is undermining its own commitment to the international rule of law and it's worried about the implications for Northern Ireland because, of course, the uh, Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement, is predicated on the UK and Ireland belonging to the European Convention on Human Rights and upholding their commitments. So um, Rob was very careful in the House of Commons today and has been careful in his recent public interventions to say he's not pulling out of his international commitments, but it's about the domestic law that accompanies that. Yeah, and it's also written into the other devolved settlements in Wales and Scotland as well. Um, but that's a fascinating point that you make there, that uh, everything in British politics is about Brexit, except Brexit, which is actually about Strasbourg, to kind of paraphrase Freud there. Um, and I wonder to what extent this is uh, political manoeuvring, or to what extent they have a kind of clear plan about how they're going to do this. Because one of the difficulties is, of course, you need a consensus in the House of Commons um, to get a vote through. But it's very interesting how it's framed around this idea of common sense. That's a classic Margaret Thatcher trick to kind of frame a policy change as common sense so you can't possibly be against common sense. Right. And, you know, John Maynard Keynes said, you know, beware the appeals to common sense because usually you're channeling some academic scribbler. Uh, I'm not sure uh, who the academic scribbler was. In this case, there wasn't many footnotes in Dominic Rapp's book. But I think he's channeling, uh, above all, uh, um, Eurosceptics in his own party. I think he has one eye on Nigel Farage, who continues to talk about the European Convention on Human Rights as if it's part of EU membership. EU membership lives on in a, in a kind of uh, extraordinarily ghoulish state for Farage uh, after UK withdrawal through things like the UK's obligations. It's the easiest win in British politics to attack foreign judges, to attack bureaucrats overseas. That was really the kind of easy line that ultimately led to Brexit. Um, and I think there's, a, there's a, a real risk that Farage will continue to play this card and put pressure on the Conservatives. It's a repeat of the kind of politics that we saw in the 1990s uh, and 2000s. All of this, of course, goes back to Enoch Powell. Enoch Powell was an early critic of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. In the 1970s, he spoke about this as a, as a kind of dangerous foreign uh, intervention. Those arguments went largely unnoticed in the 1970s, but we can see them emerging from the 1990s and 2000s onwards, where Strasbourg, a court that has very few powers compared to something like the EU's a Court of Justice, nonetheless becomes a kind of bogeyman in British politics. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more Westminster Watch. If you'd like to learn more about research on politics at Birkbeck, about Birkbeck Centre for British Political Life, and about the range of undergraduate, postgraduate, and doctoral programmes we offer, please visit our website at www.bbk.ac.uk slash politics.